The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Thank you very much. If you will, please turn to Acts chapter 15 and Romans chapter 14. Acts chapter 15 and Romans chapter 14. I got a little touch of that cold that's been going around here this week, so we'll uh, hope everything goes well this morning. But I had already predetermined that after all my comments uh, last week about Jordan, that if I had been wheeled in here on a stretcher, I was showing up today one way or the other. I was like, that would have been ironic. Jamie was laughing hardest of all, just the thought of it, but I'm fine. Acts chapter 15, Romans chapter 14, when you're there, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. bow our heads. Jesus, I pray that today as we study your word, as we think more about some of the things that we've been looking at here over the past couple of weeks, I pray that you will give us your mind and your heart. Lord, help our commitments, our first commitments always to be to you, your word, to your truth. Lord, may we always be willing to change in any area that needs changing. Lord, protect us from stubbornness and hard hearts that want to hold on to wrong ideas, wrong beliefs, wrong practices. Lord, make us faithful servants of you. And so we come this morning with that heart, with that request, asking that we will be more faithful after we spend time in your word this morning than we were when we walked in. That's our prayer request every week. So God, we give this time to you and we ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you can probably imagine, every now and then uh, we get some interesting characters who walk through the doors uh, on a particular Sunday morning. Um, Just happens when a church, you're going to have people wander into your services and there's going to be some different types of folks. You know, some of those folks are going to be interesting because as you begin to talk to them, you pick up on the fact that clearly they're not all there, right? You know, there's a few screws loose. They're not the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree, uh, those kinds of ideas, but you, (laughs) I won't tell you what I just saw. Um, Somebody just pointed at somebody else. So um, now I can't move on from that. So uh, you you get used to that though, right? Because you see that in every arena of life at Walmart a lot. other places, the DMV, there's lots of places like that where you run into people who are clearly not all with it. And so you're kind of used to that. So even on Sundays, uh, you, you're not really thrown off by it. But because we're a church, we get another group of interesting people that walk through the doors uh, on, above and beyond the normal group of weirdos. These are people who come in with some predetermined oddity in their theology. Can I say it like that? They have some weird belief, some weird something that they hold to, and uh, at some point in their time with us, you get to hear it, see it, know it. Uh, We've seen this in very mild examples. We've seen it in some very odd ones as well, but the one I'm going to tell you about this morning happened approximately five years ago. I believe it was either May or June of 2009, and I can't remember all the details of the story perfectly, so if I am off at any point, please forgive me in advance. Not that you'll know the difference, but just to say it for my sake, I'm not trying to lead you astray, but it was a particular Sunday morning. A man and his wife 
walked in, and they were very nice. Talked to them for a little bit, very personable, very friendly. And uh, we had a good interaction and invited them to come back the following Sunday, which they did. Uh, that next Sunday or maybe the Sunday after they had visited two or three times, I asked them if we could get together for coffee just so I could meet them, get to know them. And we agreed, but we couldn't get together for some reason that week. And so we moved it out to the week after, which meant that there was one Sunday in between the time I asked them to meet and the time we were actually going to get together. And it just so happened that that Sunday in between was either Mother's Day or Father's Day. I don't remember which, but that's kind of important for the story. So they came that next Sunday, which was either Mother's Day or Father's Day. And we did, if you've been at Cornerstone for any length of time, you kind of know our general routine on, on Mother's Day, Father's Day. Some of the stuff we do to recognize moms and dads on those days. But we don't actually recognize the dads in any way other than just saying Happy Father's Day. But we at least recognize them in that sense. And they were there and they saw all that. And I want to say that at the end of that service, again, I can't remember this for sure. I think we had a picnic at Red Wing Park that particular Sunday as well. Well, it was the day after that service, the day after Mother's Day or Father's Day, or maybe a day or two later, I got an email from him with a link to a little article he had written on his blog. And I want to read the article to you. I kept it. I want to read the article to you so that you can kind of get a sense of where he was at uh, in relation to what he saw. He wrote, quote, it's not very long. Americans celebrate the man-made holidays Mother's Day and Father's Day on Sunday, which is the same day God designated to be the Lord's Day. This is one of Satan's many subtle attempts to supplant the recognition of the Lord's Day. It is nothing short of sin to call the Lord's Day Mother's Day or Father's Day. No holiday established by man should compete with a holy day established by God. We no more call the Lord's Day Mother's or Father's Day than we call the Lord's Supper the Mother's or the Father's Supper. Sunday is the Lord's Day and the Lord's Day alone. God does not share his glory with another. For example, share holy days recognizing himself with holidays recognizing man. God's praises are not to diminish on the Lord's Day to make room for idols such as Mother's Day or Father's Day. We must always remember to put God first before mother and father Therefore, we must choose between either the Lord's Day or Mother's and Father's Day. We can't have them both. Contrary to popular views, the Bible does require us today to keep the Sunday Sabbath holy. So he had a point of view, okay? And you can kind of see that point of view established through a few comments there. For example, it is clearly sin to refer, just to refer to the Lord's Day as Mother's Day or Father's Day or to acknowledge it anyway. He referred to the observance of those holidays on a Sunday to be idolatry. And he's drawing all of this based on his overall view of the value and place of the Sunday Sabbath. Did you hear all those comments along the way there? Um, well, needless to say, our meeting was a little different after that, you know. Uh, it didn't quite go as I had originally envisioned that going, and they didn't come back to Cornerstone ever again. Um, I bring this up, obviously, because of what we've been learning over these past two Sundays here in Mark chapter 2. We've been looking at this final controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees here in Mark chapter 2, verse 23, to Mark chapter 3, verse 6. And this final controversy has to do with the cultural understanding of the Sabbath that was predominant in Jesus' day. And I hope by now you get why I have referred to it as a cultural thing, not a biblical thing, 
because what Jesus is reacting to and responding to is not their biblical understanding of the Sabbath, but rather all of the cultural stuff that they had piled on top of that view of the Sabbath that they then held people accountable for. And last week we saw how Jesus responded to all of that in these two little vignettes that he gives us here in verses 223 to 36. In, in Mark 2, 23 to 28, his main point when you get to the end of that little scene there is that God's laws are not intended to be a set of shackles that bind man into service of God. No, no, no. Service for God is intended to come from something else. And God's laws weren't given as shackles. They were given as a blessing to man. And the the Pharisees clearly don't get this. In the second little vignette there, Mark 3, 1 to 6, Jesus' main point is that the observance of the law will never be contrary to or conflict with the common acts of mercy, kindness, and love for others that God would expect. If you have to choose between obedience and love, then somewhere something's off. Because obedience and love would never, never contradict one another, never. And so what Jesus is doing in these scenes is he is exposing his culture's wrong view of God, ultimately, via their wrong view of God's commands. That was my point last time, and I tried to make that clear. I hope it was. If you weren't here, go back and listen to it. It's online, and I hope it will be helpful to you. But, but as we've been working through all of this, I've had a number of you, number of you now, come up to me and in one way, shape, or form, you know, say to me, okay, I get what you're saying. I understand what Jesus is saying. The Sabbath is not Sunday. Uh, we'll talk about that again in a second. But it, it, so what is a right view of this stuff? What is a right view of the Sabbath? What is a Christian's responsibility to that concept? Or, or another way of saying it in a different question, what is the Christian's responsibility towards the Lord's Day? And as you could hear from that little article I read to you, there are people out there with various opinions of what that should look like. And so what I want to do here, and I forgot to put the question up there. What I want to do today is answer this question, what is a right view of the Sabbath? For us, what, what is it that we should be doing? What, what is it that we are required to do, that we are permitted to do, prohibited from doing? I hope there's one thing you all understand so far about the Sabbath, and that is this, that the Lord's Day is a, wait, wait, that the Lord's Day is either A, the Sabbath, or B, not the Sabbath. Which one is it? Thank you. B, it is not the Sabbath day. We figure that out at this point. I'm going to elaborate that again. But, but that's not how most of us have grown up thinking, is it? Most of us have grown up, and most of us in this room, I should say, have grown up thinking that somehow what we are, the day of the week we're in right now, is the, the Sabbath. It's the Christian Sabbath. And because this is the Christian Sabbath, there are certain things we have to do and certain things we can't do. And, and what, should we treat them differently? Or the, I want to address that today. And hopefully, hopefully by the end, you'll have a better grasp of how to answer those questions um, in your own hearts and minds. And so to answer this for you, to give you this understanding, I want to look at this question historically, biblically, and practically, and in doing so, I think, I think you'll be benefited by this. Let's begin by looking at this question historically about what is the right view of the Sabbath. And what I'm going to do is just walk you through th- four eras of church history just real quickly. 
so that you know where this understanding came from in the first place. Because it's not going to come from probably what you expect. I'll start with the early church. How did the early church understand the Sabbath? Well, likely, if you were Jewish and you had come to Jesus in faith, believing that he was the Christ, very likely you continued to observe the Sabbath, which occurred from Friday night at sundown to Saturday night at sundown. You observed it because it was part of your culture. It's part of your heritage. It was just what you did. We see Paul and the apostles often observing the Sabbath and using the Sabbath as a means of proclaiming Christ. So Paul likes to go into a synagogue on the Sabbath day to meet with the Jews and proclaim Christ to them. Or he goes out to a riverbank in areas that don't have a synagogue where the Jews had gathered and he proclaims Christ to them. And so they observed the Sabbath in that sense, but they also observed the Lord's Day. And when we talk about the Lord's Day, and I'll give you a biblical understanding that I hope will make it a little clearer in a moment. For now, I'm just going to assume that the Lord's Day was always Sunday in their minds. Sunday for them, though, was the first work day of the week. Did you hear that? It was the first work day of the week which meant that if you're a believer who's wanting to gather with the other believers on the Lord's day, on the first day of the week to to worship, you either A, have to gather early before work begins, or B, gather late after work ends. That's your options. It wasn't like after you became a Christian, you're like, hey, boss, sorry. I mean, I know I'm a slave and I don't really have the ability to do this, but I'm not working today. I just want you to know it's the Lord's day. There was no expectation of that in their minds. They recognized that, yes, it's the Lord's day, but it's also work day, and I got to go to work, and they built their schedules around this. And you find evidence in church history of them meeting early, them meeting late, whatever was most convenient for them at the time. This is just what they did. It's how they met. And so there's this little bit of both and in these ideas. The Jewish Christians are still probably observing the Sabbath as a part of their culture, but also gathering on the Lord's day, the Gentile Christians are gathering on the Lord's day before or after work. It's just how it was. And this continued through the time of Constantine. Constantine is a Roman emperor who is famous for doing what? Who can answer that question for me? What Constantine did, class? Who's got an answer? Yes, he made it the official religion of the Roman Empire because he converted to Christianity. And when he converted to Christianity, boom. Everyone now needs to be a Christian. Rome is a Christian empire. And because of that, and because he has the power to do so, guess what he does to the Lord's day? He makes it a day of rest. He takes it and says, okay, no more working today. This is now an official day of rest because it's the day we're going to gather and worship. And notice that I didn't say that he calls it the Sabbath. He calls it a day of rest. But obviously, since the Sabbath day is also a day of rest, it doesn't take very long before people begin to confuse these ideas and begin to view Sunday as the new Sabbath. And that idea is going to be taken and developed in spades by the Reformers. By the time you jump ahead about 1,200 years and you get to Luther and Calvin and the Westminster Divines, they're going to take this idea that, that Sunday, the Lord's Day, is the Christian Sabbath, and they're going to develop the heck out of this thing, okay? They write voluminously on the subject. And it's funny, when you read their writings, they most often simply point back to each other rather than pointing back to Scripture, something I'll note in a moment. 
And they begin to now teach that the fourth commandment is fulfilled by keeping the Lord's day holy, even though there's no biblical warrant for that whatsoever. It's these guys that bring us to our fourth phase, modern American Christianity. It's these guys who most influenced the way the American church viewed this topic. So by the time the American church is really growing and developing, they have just accepted in in whole this idea that the Lord's Day, Sunday, is the Sabbath day. It's the Christian Sabbath, and we should keep it holy through all the ways that we would see in the Old Testament. And that's why many of us grew up like this. And it influenced our entire culture, did it not? I was talking to someone uh, the other day. I won't say who, to not embarrass that person. But um, we're talking about blue laws. And they're like, what's a blue law? Now, I'm going to embarrass all of you now. If you don't know what a blue law is, raise your hand. If you've never heard that phrase, I thought this would be a bigger number. If all of us old people who remember blue laws, raise our hands. I remember the first time I ever learned about blue laws. I I don't know how old I was, but we were still living in Greenville, North Carolina, where I was born. We lived there for a few years. And I really wanted to go to the store on a Sunday afternoon and get something, a toy. I don't know what it was. And my parents, you know, we were at a stoplight or something, and they explained to me the meaning, the purpose, and the value of the blue laws. The blue laws were a set of laws that said basically most stores, businesses had to be closed on Sundays. Okay? That's really all it was. And they, I don't know why I got the name Blue. I always associated it with Kmart as a kid. <laughs> that's true. I honestly associated it with Kmart because they had a blue light special and you couldn't go to Kmart. So I was like, <laughs> Blue Laws. But I don't think that's the right answer. So if you want to go find out what the right answer is, you can do so and let me know later. Uh, these were the Blue Laws, and it kept our culture, our society as a whole, in observance of these same concepts that the reformers promoted that came out of Constantine's change back in the 300s. And and it was just the way that most of us in here grew up. But as always, right, letting the scriptures speak for themselves is always the most helpful, enlightening, and best thing to do. And so now that you have a very brief, compact understanding of where this came from, let's talk about a biblical understanding of these things, a biblical understanding. Let's talk about worship on the Lord's day. What does the New Testament actually say about this concept of worshiping on the Lord's day? And I'll point out something to you that you probably didn't know. The term Lord's day is only used one time in the New Testament. And that's in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, where John who is on the island of Patmos, writes that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And Jesus appears to him and gives him what we know as the book of Revelation. Okay, This is the one and only New Testament reference to the Lord's day. But as you look throughout church history, you see that this was the term most often used to describe what we think of as Sundays. And it was often called that, or obviously called that, I should say, because this was the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and the Christians wanted to celebrate that weekly. For them, every Sunday was Easter. And we talk about that, and we'll say it again even this Easter, that every Sunday for us is Easter. We gather as a, a, on a symbolic day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and that's what they did as well. And it's interesting to note, though, that the New Testament never requires us to gather on Sundays. Did you know that? Never. It requires us to gather regularly, 
but never specifies the day or time that this needs to occur. So in theory, then, we could gather at 3 p.m. on Tuesdays regularly, and we would meet the biblical requirement. It's not required, and yet it is clear in the New Testament that the early church gathered on Sundays in honor of Christ's resurrection. Paul recognizes this pattern just as an example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, when he writes to them, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so there will be no collecting when I come. And you'd have to read more to get the full context of what he's doing here and why. I'm just simply showing you this example that either because he knows they're doing this already or because he assumes that this is the day they meet, he makes his directions around Sunday, the first day, the, the Lord's day. It became the day that Christians gather to worship, learn, fellowship, and serve. What about Sabbath observance, though? What does the New Testament say about that? Well, this is interesting. As you read people like the the guy whose article I read to you and people he would read, as you read their arguments about why Sundays should be considered the Christian Sabbath, they almost always go back to Genesis chapter 2 and make an argument something like this, because Genesis 2 was given before the law of Moses, and was given to all mankind, right? Adam and Eve, that was it. Given all mankind. Therefore, it remains in effect for all mankind for all eternity, regardless of the law. Okay, did you follow that? Okay, it's, it's given before the law. It's given to all mankind. And so therefore, even though the law is done away with for us now in Christ, this eternal command remains for all mankind for all eternity. And somehow from that, they get the Sunday is now it. I don't get that part, but they just kind of skim over that. And they take this argument and they build on it from there, assuming a lot of things, making a lot of logical jumps that I don't think the text supports. And I would simply turn to them and I would turn to the New Testament and point you to two specific passages that I believe shed a lot of light on this subject for us. Guess what? Those are the two passages you've turned to. Look at Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, we have what is commonly called the Council of Jerusalem. Okay, So there's a situation that's going on. You'll read about it in verse 1. And the church in Antioch, where this is all taking place, is going to send some, uh, some believers, some of the leaders, out to Jerusalem to get a final answer from the apostles. And so we're going to read portions of Acts 15 here and follow along, if you will. Look at verse 1. He writes, But some men came down from Judea to Antioch. Okay, that's where this is happening. And we're teaching the brothers this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now stop and just consider that for a moment. They're saying that salvation is contingent not on Christ alone, but on Christ plus this aspect of keeping the law, circumcision here, okay? And if you remember back even to last week, what are the two primary cultural identity markers of Judaism? It's keeping the Sabbath and circumcision. So this is one of the the big two here, okay? You've got to be circumcised in, in keeping with the custom of Moses in order to be saved. And they don't really agree on this. And so this is why they send this delegation off to Jerusalem to get an answer from the apostles and the elders. And so look at verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, 
They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, and I know you're about to like fall over, the Pharisees got saved. Some of them did, yes, apparently. Some of them get saved, and they're there in this meeting, and the Pharisees rise up and say, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together gather to consider this matter so there's a group here in jerusalem that has the same idea no they get they need to keep the law they need to be circumcised they need to obey the the sabbath follow the sabbath they need to do everything else as well and and, and luke writes that after there had been much debate peter stood up and said to them brothers you know that in the early days god made a choice among you that by my mouth the gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe and he's referring to the time he goes to Cornelius's house in Acts chapter 10 and Cornelius a gentile is saved and receives the holy spirit and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the holy spirit just as he did to us and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith now therefore why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's, he stands up and he's like, I don't, I don't get it. I told you what God did with Cornelius. I told you how Cornelius, a Gentile, an uncircumcised heathen, placed his faith in Christ, and God gave him the Holy Spirit just like us, making no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And now, even though God has made no distinction on between us, you want to take something that was a yoke and a burden on us and put it on them? We couldn't even keep it. We couldn't keep it. You want to, you want to give it to them? I don't, I don't get it. And so they They talk about it. Paul and Barnabas declare all that God had done uh, amongst the Gentiles. After they finish, James stands up and he issues a statement about what should be required of the Gentiles. And everyone agrees. And so they write a letter. And I want you to hear the letter beginning in verse 23. The letter reads like this. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, one, that you abstain from blood, two, that you abstain from what has been strangled, three, and that you abstain from sexual immorality, four, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. Now, As you read this list, I know that you're probably having some questions about some of the things that they agreed on here that the Gentiles should abstain from, probably most likely the the things strangled in blood. I don't know either. So we're going to leave that for today. I want you to notice what's not listed, though. One of the requirements that they didn't place on them was, oh, and here's number five, that you observe the Sabbath. They, They have an opportunity here to clarify out of everything written in the law, what things are we going to ask the Gentiles to observe and, and, and not? 
If there's ever a moment to say, oh, and by the way, you need to keep observing the Sabbath, this is the moment, and they pass. It's not one of the things they need to observe. It's just not there. So that means then that the apostles who say that they have been guided by the Holy Spirit here see no purpose in requiring this of the new believers. Now, turn over to Romans chapter 14 for a moment. You've got that in your head. Keep it there. In Romans 14, we're going to be reading Paul's letter to this Roman church. And the Roman church, excuse me, is most likely made up of a mix of Jew and Gentile. You get that kind of as you read through the, through the, the, the letter. And apparently there are some issues of disagreement between these two groups as to what and what is not permitted as a believer in Jesus now. And so here in Romans 14, Paul's going to kind of talk that issue through and try to help them understand. If you will, look at verses 1 through 8. In verse 1, he begins by saying, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but, but not to quarrel over opinions. And I just pause and say that means that some people are weak in faith, some people are strong in faith. These groups can be together, but they shouldn't be fighting. That's his, his point here. Okay, so let's, let's play this out. One person believes he may, he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So I've got one guy, probably a Gentile, who's like, I want a bacon-wrapped ham sandwich with a side of pork rinds. And and who said, oh, yeah, to that? (laughs) Oh, all right. Bacon-wrapped ham sandwich, side of pork rinds. And the Jewish believer over here is like, oh, I I don't, mm, I don't think, do you have like any cabbage and leeks I could have maybe? Instead, I don't feel comfortable with that. So so who's right and wrong? Is the Gentile guy who's eating the bacon-wrapped ham sandwich and the pork rinds right, or is it the Jewish guy who's got the cabbage and the leeks over here? Well, let's see what he says. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Wait a minute, this isn't a right-wrong issue. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This isn't a right-wrong issue. This is a matter of conscience. Are there any other issues of conscience maybe he wants to talk about? Oh, look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And again, I would pause and just point out, does he say the word Sabbath here? No. So it might be other days he's thinking of, but understanding the context of Romans, I feel pretty confident that this is a reference to to the Sabbath. That there's one guy who looks at one day and he's like, this is different than all the other days. The guy over here is like, eh, they're all alike. 24 hours in each one. It doesn't change. Let's keep going. And and so how do these two work? Which one's right? Which one's wrong? Again, it's not a right-wrong issue on this point of day observance. Each one simply needs to be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it how? In honor of the Lord. Just like the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And even though he doesn't say it then, the one who thinks every day is the same, does it in honor of the Lord, giving thanks to God too. It's his point. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we're we're the Lord's. Okay, what's he saying? 
Well, based on this, Paul is saying that you could either observe one day as being more special than the others or not, both in honor of God. Clearly, then, the issue isn't about the day, is it? It's about honoring God. One honors God by observing it. One honors God by not observing it. And so based on these things, Acts 15, Romans 14, I feel very confident in saying to you that there is no biblical requirement for Christians to observe the Sabbath, nor is there a prohibition from us doing so. Either way, to the Lord. It's a matter of conscience. Now, because it's left as a matter of conscience, then, how do we respond? I've got five things for you, and then I'll be done here. Five responses practically for how to respond to this matter of conscience, this issue of the Lord's Day and the Sabbath and all those things that revolve around them. Number one, we should act in love toward those who differ from us on these kinds of issues of conscience. It's not just about the Sabbath, by the way. Okay? This would apply to lots of issues of conscience. But since this is the one we're looking at, you should respond in love, act in love toward those who differ from us on these issues of conscience. I would point you again to Romans 14.3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. You drop down 10 verses in verse 13. He writes, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer in these issues, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So as I'm dealing with people who differ from me, okay, the guy who wrote the, the, the article, I, I can't pass I think he's wrong, but he's a brother. He's a brother, and I have to love him. And and I'm not going to like be inviting him over to you know watch football all afternoon because I know he's not going to come. Okay, he's not going to. He wouldn't do it. It's just not his thing. He's got a conscience issue against it. Well, his is a little beyond conscience, but whatever. Uh, I, I just have to recognize that it's not my job to fix him. In matter of conscience, we don't pass judgment. We we act in love towards one another. Number two, we should act in faith and not violate our conscience on these matters. Act in faith and not violate our conscience. So further down in Romans 14, verse 22, Paul writes, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, and whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so if you have grown up with a particular mindset and and you've got this conscience issue about the Lord's Day, and on the Lord's Day is different, we treat it, It would be wrong of you then to violate your conscience. That would be sin. Not because of anything with the day, but because you're not acting in faith. And whatever is not in faith is clearly sin. In like manner, if you have no issue with the day, and it would violate your conscience, I'm not quite sure how this would work, it would violate your conscience to observe it? Well, then don't observe it. Okay, do you get the point? The point is simply you don't act out of your conscience. Everything that you do has to be done in faith. So if you have a conscience issue with this point, don't violate it. Number three, we should embrace rest as God's gift to man on a regular basis. We should embrace rest as God's gift to man on a regular basis. And I'm drawing this from Jesus' comment there in Mark 2 when he says the Sabbath was made for man. You get it? It was made for you. It's a blessing to you because it's not good for man to work seven days a week. It's a blessing to you. There are too many of us in this room who don't really get that concept. 
We, we want to fill every moment of every day with something. And, and I think there is a biblical principle here. It's not day or time specific where rest is right. Rest is good and rest should be pursued for God's glory and our good. And so that doesn't have to be from Friday night at sundown to Saturday night at sundown or Sunday. It could be every night from 7 to 8 o'clock. It, it can be any pattern you want, but it should be a regular component of our life. Number four, in a similar way, we should set apart time to and for God on a regular basis because clearly we're too self-focused. And one of the things that the Sabbath did for Israel was it set a time in the week that was clearly given to and for God, where they remembered him, they worshiped him. And this hasn't changed. That need hasn't changed for us. What you're doing right now is part of that. You have set apart this time to and for God. And I really think that as a society and as people in our society, we should become a little bit more interested in that idea. Because people will easily pass aside their times to and for God for just about anything else. You try to get them to get up 15 minutes earlier in the morning to spend time reading the, the Bible? Oh, I'm tired. But they can get up 15 minutes earlier to do anything else? Where is our time set apart to and for God? Sundays are important, but oh man, I'm just, I just it's a long weekend. I need to sleep in today. What? Where is our time set apart? How do we teach our children the importance of setting aside time to and for God? Not, not necessarily day and time specific, but, but every day again. And then number five, just fifth common. I'm sorry I'm throwing these at you quick, but I want you to get them, and they're not very complicated. We should remember the eternal rest that is coming where we will live in God's presence forever. Because after Jesus died and rose again, he entered into God's rest, did he not? Sitting at the right hand of the Father. And through his death and resurrection, we are offered rest as well. Rest now, peace with God, at rest with God, resting in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. But not only that, for all of us who have heard the gospel and believed, a future rest, a promised rest yet to come that will be completely set apart to and for God. But as we read earlier in Hebrews, the, those who fail to believe the gospel, they have no rest now and no rest to hope of eternal rest in the future. Their hearts are hardened, the writer of Hebrews said. They're disobedient, he says. And because of this, they don't enter into his rest. And so the writer of Hebrews pleads with them, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't fail to enter into his rest because of your unbelief. Believe the gospel. Submit to God and turn to Christ. I, look, I get this is a different kind of message, right? But I hope it helps you think through this issue better than you have in the past. One, to understand where the ideas came from, even if in a very high-level kind of way. Two, then, to have a biblical understanding of these issues. Again, if nothing else, in a very high-level way. And three, to have some practical things to go home and really think about. Because as an issue of conscience, your conscience needs to be informed by truth. And then you need to live within that truth. And no matter what the subject is, whether it's Sabbath or anything else, our goal should always be to live and act as faithfully as we can to the Scripture. We're not, we're not trying to be faithful to a tradition here, nor are we trying to be faithful to a culture. We're trying to be faithful to the revealed truth of Jesus as given to us in God's Word. And that pursuit of faithfulness, 
may not always take us where we think. Some of you came in this morning with, with certain ideas about what Sundays are about and Sabbaths is about. I don't know what you came in here with. Or, but I ask you and I beg you, make faithfulness to Christ more than your commitments to tradition. Make faithfulness to Christ the thing that you strive after more than anything else. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we, we've just taken a few minutes here to understand or try to understand this topic. I pray, Lord, that you will inform our consciences on this issue, that you will help us to be faithful to you in not just this area, but in all areas. Lord, it's easy to just cling to the past and cling to our old ideas and never really come to grips with what your word says. So we've tried to do that this morning, and if we have erred at any point, forgive us and, and show us what's right. But I pray, Lord, that we will be a people that don't simply set aside one day for you, but we live every day for you. That we recognize that this isn't just about this one issue. It's about, it's about faithfulness to you in all issues. And so the gospel has come and has set us free to enter into this rest we have in you. Lord, help us to enjoy it, to enjoy it, to embrace it, and to seek to spread it to others. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for our time together in it this morning. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.